We're in a series on the church, and we've talked a lot about the church so far in some general ways, and we're moving towards some specific parts about the church, and today we're talking about sacraments. And as I got through the sermon, I realized I wasn't going to get to the point that I wanted to, and that happens occasionally. So I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're not really going to spend most of our time in any one place this morning, as you'll see, but we will be referencing Genesis chapter 3. So I want to just use that as our scripture this morning, and then you'll see how it unfolds. We're going to begin with Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, and go through verse 19. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you. That's the Lord in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You may be seated, and let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's Word. In the state of Maine, there's a well-known saying which is used when someone there asks for directions. And the reply is, well, you can't get there from here. And not ever having been to Maine, I can't be sure why they say that, but whether it's there's just no direct routes in Maine or there's a lot of lakes in Maine, uh, but what happens is somebody says, well, how do I get to this town over here? And you reply, well, you can't get there from here. In other words, you've got to go to several different towns, and once you get to like the third town over, then when you get there, you can get there from that point. And so that's what it's like driving around in Maine, and that's sort of what it's like driving around talking about the sacraments. If you come up to me and say, Paul, I understand there's two sacraments of the church. Can you explain them to me? I'll say, well, we can't get there from here. 
We can't just go directly to the sacraments. You have to sort of go around and visit these other places. And then you can say, okay, now I see how we're getting to these things that the church calls the sacraments. So uh, as we go through this, um, we're, we're trying to take the most direct route, but it's not direct. And we're going to eventually get to the sacraments. But we've got to travel through several other places prior to our arrival and so this morning, let's think of our sermon as a, a traveling ser- sermon, as a journey to the sacraments, which are communion and baptism. And we'll talk about those in the next two weeks. And because we're, we're not going to be really looking at one particular text, it'll cause you to need to be an even better listener, because we're not going to be just staring at the text and saying, oh, okay, I see it right there. We're going to have to put on our, our Bible hats and try to understand what, what's the big story happening and how do those things point to the sacraments. So we're just trying to get to a point, and my hope is that we arrive at the end of the sermon and say, okay, now we're at a point that we can see the sacraments. So that's the journey this morning. First thing that I think it's helpful to understand on our journey, maybe the first place to stop in our illustration, is that when you read the Bible, one feature you notice right away is that is the consistency in which God deals with humanity. When you read the Bible, if you read through it, you'd see a consistent pattern and that God always is dealing with humanity in a certain way, and that is through what we call covenants. Covenants are binding personal commitments made between two people. When, when God's making a covenant with his people, he's making some kind of binding personal agreement uh, between him and us. And covenants often include some kind of sign and or seal. So they're reminders to say a covenant happened here. I've got a sign. I've got a, a seal that tells me that God is going to be faithful to his covenant promises. And you might think of it just in terms of a picture. Uh, yesterday, some of us were at the wedding of Ashley Davis and Chris Banker. And what we would say was what, what we watched was a covenant of marriage. In other words, these two people made promises to each other. They made a binding personal commitment that was unique to this couple. And, of course, there was a sign. That was the ring. There's a sign. They put on a sign to, to say to each other, to say to themselves, to say to the rest of the world, hey, we're married. We're, I want you to know that I'm in a, a binding personal commitment with this particular person. And so that's the idea of a covenant. Second place along our journey, once we understand that God is working with his people or with humanity through covenants, then the simplest way to understand your Bible is to see the Bible as being divided into two basic covenants. Two different and distinct ways in which God and humanity have a binding personal relationship. One is called the covenant of works, sometimes the call, called the covenant of creation. And the second one is the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. So when you open up your Bible, the first thing that you see, one feature that you see is that God's dealing with humanity in means of or by means of a covenant. And when you look at your Bible, your Bible is basically divided into two pieces. And one is a covenant of works. And then it shifts to a covenant of grace. 
First, the covenant of works, Genesis chapter 2, which is why we read Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, God created mankind. He established a covenant between himself and Adam and Eve. And this covenant that got established in Genesis chapter 2 is what theologians call the covenant of works. And the way a covenant of works works, is that the right way to say that? The way a covenant of works works is there's a binding personal agreement. And if you do this, then I'm going to do this. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. God sets up this relationship. Hey, we have a unique binding personal relationship. It's different than all of creation. I'm having this unique relationship as your creator with you made in my image. And if you obey, then I'm going to protect and I'm going to preserve you. It's a a covenant. And there's a kind of ring that Adam and Eve have on their finger. There's a kind of sign that tells Adam and Eve, that, that tells all of creation that there's a unique relationship between God and Adam. And that ring or that sign is one tree standing in the middle of a garden. The tree itself didn't have any special power. It wasn't a magic tree in any way. It was a sign. It was just a tree. And it was a sign, and it was a reminder to Adam and Eve, and it was a reminder to the rest of the creation that although Adam was responsible to exercise dominion over all of creation, the tree was a sign that God exercised dominion over Adam. So there's nothing particularly special about the tree. It's not a magic tree in any way. We don't want to think of it in that way. It's just simply a tree. And the tree is a sign. And the tree is a sign to Adam and Eve every time they pass the tree. It's a sign to all of creation to say, hey, even though Adam is exercising dominion in this realm, there is somebody greater that's exercising dominion. And that's God. And this tree is always going to be a little ring on our finger to remind us that we're really not the king The king is somebody else. The king is God. And all we are is managers for the king. But we know in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve decided they would rather be the king. In some sense, you could say Adam took off his wedding ring. He divorced himself from God. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to be the one who exercises dominion over all creation. And he wanted to exercise dominion over the creator. And so we call that the fall or sin. And the results were disastrous. It it didn't just affect the entire human race. It affected creation itself. And, And today, humanity and creation groan under the weight of that one particular act. So so everything that we see, all disasters, natural or man-made or otherwise, they go back to this particular event, that, that mankind wanted to be the king. And when mankind wanted to be the king and tried to displace God, then this disaster began to unfold in humanity and also in creation. One thing that was lost in this fall, Genesis chapter 3, was Adam's ability to work himself back into a right relationship with God. So before Genesis chapter 3, there was this covenant of works. If Adam did this, then God would do that. But now Adam doesn't want to do this. He doesn't desire to do this. And even if he had a desire, he can't get himself back. He lost all hope of working 
back into a right relationship with God. And his desire to free himself from God's rule actually resulted him resulted in him being imprisoned to sin itself. Here was a, a man and a woman living in perfect freedom with God as their king, and they decided, no, I would rather be the king. And what they put themselves in is this small little prison cell of sin, and they can't get out of that box. And now they have to hope that there's going to be help from the outside to come and free them from a prison of their own making. And in the midst of the judgment that we read in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, when the Lord said to the serpent, and then in verse 16, the Lord said to the woman, and then in verse 17, the Lord said to Adam. In the midst of all this judgment, we're asking ourselves, would there be any grace? In the midst of what we really deserve, the question is, is there going to be any grace in the midst of this judgment? And the answer is yes. Incorporated in the judgment is the first glimpse of what we call now the covenant of grace. And it happens in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, your offspring and her offspring. And, and she shall bru- or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, so in the midst of this judgment, God is giving this little glimmer that there is going to be another covenant that's made. And now it's not a covenant based on works. It's a covenant completely based on God, and it's a covenant of grace. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant. That's a covenant of grace. And so we get the first glimpse of this grace in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. So the simplest way, this is the next part of our journey. The first stop is that God deals with humanity through covenants. You see that all through the Bible. The second stop is that there are two main covenants displayed in the Bible. This covenant of works, that's Genesis 1 and 2, and then the covenant of grace, Genesis 3.15, to the end of the Bible. Okay, so everybody with me so far on the journey. We're, we're trying to get to sacraments, but we've got to make these stops along the way. Third stop. Now, now thinking of reading your Bible from Genesis... Now, now, in your thinking, when you begin to read your Bible from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think about reading that part of your Bible, Genesis three fifteen to Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. Think about reading all of that like sitting on the beach as the sun is rising. When you read that part of your Bible, think that you're sitting on the beach and the sun hasn't broken over the horizon. It's darkness, but then you begin to see little shreds, little slivers of life begin to come out of the horizon. It's it's not yet the sun, but it's telling you something. It's saying something is about to break onto the horizon. And the rest of the Old Testament is basically pointing you to something, someone, this seed is going to break onto the horizon and that's what we think of when we think of reading through all of the old testament beginning with genesis 3 15 so genesis 3 verse 6 through 8 is darkness 
Let me just read that for you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. When you get to Genesis 3, verse 8, it's pitch darkness. Humanity now is living in complete darkness. Their minds have been blinded. And now the question is, is is there another way? And we've answered that with yes, Now, what is that way? And when you read through the Old Testament, little shreds of light come up to say, yes, someone is on their way. And we see that first in Genesis 3.15. This this seed, there's someone coming. There's someone powerful enough to crush the enemy, to defeat death. And in their defeat... In his defeat, the seed of the woman, this person that's going to be born out of the woman, when he defeats death, he himself will be bruised in the process. So you don't see everything, but you just begin to see light coming on the horizon that God is going to work in some graceful and magnificent way. And, of course, we could see this unfolding light all the way through the Old Testament, but perhaps it's easiest to see the light in specific covenants that he makes with his people in the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. With Noah, we have one righteous man whose entire family is saved due to his standing before God. Imagine that. Noah lives in this very decadent culture. Hard for us to even imagine. I mean, no matter what you may think of the current culture, he, he lived in a time that's really unbelievable and maybe unsurpassed in human history. And this one righteous man is going to find a way home for himself and his family. Do you see? You see light coming on? It doesn't say everything, but it shows you a little bit more light about this seed. This seed, this person's going to come. He's going to be like one righteous man, and he's going to lead his family, the church, through darkness and into uh, a great life. A little bit more light comes on the scene as we look at Noah. And, of course, there's a sign for Noah. There's a reminder that God is going to do this, that God is going to be faithful to his promises. And we know that sign is the rainbow. Second, Abraham. Abraham is one chosen man whose faith not only extends over over his family, but extends over a nation. And then every nation in the world is going to be blessed through this one man who's been chosen. You see more, a little more light. You don't see everything, but you just see a little bit more light that that this one person, the seed of this woman, this one righteous man that's going to save his family. It's just more light is coming on. And you say, no, this one righteous man has been chosen to save. His faith is going to extend over his family. It's going to extend over a nation and it's going to spread out to the whole world. 
And, of course, there's a sign that God is going to be faithful to this particular promise, and that sign is circumcision. It's not a sign to remind God, hey, God, make sure you're faithful, like he's going to forget. It's a sign to Abraham. It's a sign to the rest of the world. It's a sign to everybody to say, I'm trusting in somebody who is going to be faithful. Even if I'm not faithful, he's going to be faithful back to me. Moses. God is going to rescue his people from slavery. Not just the slavery of of the Egyptians, but the slavery of sin, where Adam and Eve locked themselves up to be imprisoned. And the rescue is going to be costly. In order to set these people free, it's going to cost something. You remember what the cost is? It's the blood of a lamb. See, if you want death to pass over you, if you want death to pass over your family, we've got to have above the doorway of your house so everybody inside is protected. We have to have the blood of a perfect lamb so when death descends and everybody gets a right judgment, then the angel comes to you and says, no, you have the perfect blood of the lamb. He has taken away your sin so I can pass over you and you can be set free and you can go to the promised land. See, a little bit more light, a little bit more than the seed, a little bit more than Noah, a little bit more than Abraham. And now we come to Moses and we say, no, now, now there's somebody that's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to be like this perfect lamb who is shed for my sin and he's going to set me free. Then you come to David, the king of Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over, in other words, David, when you die and you go rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And here's the little sign. Your kingdom, your house will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. See, there's going to be another true king. A king of God's choosing that's going to come. And that king's going to reign forever. Another shred of light. It's not the sun itself. It just begins to say, hey, something's on the horizon. I can see a a little bit more. The seed of the woman's going to crush the enemy. The righteous man is going to provide a way through disaster. The blood of the perfect lamb will set people free. And there will be a mass exodus out of sin into life. And the righteous man, this lamb, will also be the king who rules forever. The the rays are not the sun, but they begin to pierce the darkness and you begin to see the horizon that somebody is on the way. And it's no surprise that when Jesus breaks the horizon towards the River Jordan and John the Baptist is standing there and John looks at Jesus and he says, behold, what does he say? Behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, somebody has come up over the horizon. This is the real sun. Everything else was a a shadow. Everything else was a a ray. Everything was pointing towards this person, and he is the lamb. He's the king. He's the seed. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one. Follow after him. 
And when Jesus' own disciples don't understand what they've seen in Jesus. You remember on the road to Emmaus, the, the disciples are sort of bewildered. And Jesus, in sort of disguise, comes up and talks to these two men that are walking alongside of the road. And they say, well, we don't really know what's going on. What does Jesus do? He takes them back to the rays of the Old Testament. And he says, can't you see these rays are pointing to myself? It says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to his disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, what a lesson. We don't know what's going on. And Jesus walks up and says, guys, you know the Old Testament, don't you? Yeah. All those rays, all the things that were piercing through the darkness that you had hope that someone was going to come. All those people, they've been met in me. You've now seen the sun come over the horizon. And when they see it, they go, our hearts were burning within us because the Son of God had really appeared And I wonder if you have this covenant relationship with Jesus. See, now he is the mediator of a new covenant. And if you want to get to God, if you want to have a binding personal relationship with God, you have to come through Jesus. He's the seed. He's the ark. He's the way through. He's the blessing to all nations. He's the king. And if you want to have a binding personal relationship with God, then you have to have a binding personal relationship with Jesus. Are you married to Jesus? Or maybe are you just dating Jesus? I mean, he's the best thing on the scene right now. He looks good now. He's working for me now. But I'm sort of looking around. I mean, I've got one foot in, one foot out. Maybe I'm looking, maybe there's, if if something else comes along. Or maybe you're dating someone or something else. You're, You're thinking, no, if I get the job, if I get the degree, if I get the diploma, if I get the person, if I get the comfort, if I get the health, if I get the, if that thing comes along, then I'll really have life. And really you're dating something that can't supply life eternally. And so our question is, we're moving towards the sacraments is, do you have this binding relationship with God through Jesus Christ? See, everything is pointing towards him, all of history, all of creation and perhaps you say, yes, I do have that, but I've, I've wandered away. I've forgotten my vows. I've neglected my own promises to God. And Jesus was well aware of our tendency to wander away, to forget. And when we wander away and when we forget, what happens? We begin to question if God is going to be faithful. Isn't that weird how that happens? I begin to wander away. I begin to be unfaithful. And then when I look at God and think about God, I say, I wonder if he's going to be faithful. (laughs) And he knows that's going to happen. So what does he do? 
He knows like sheep, you're going to wander away and you're going to think, I wonder if he's been faithful. So what does he do? He provides a sign. And what are the signs? Baptism and communion. And we call those sacraments. Okay, we've arrived. So we finally got to the place that now we can say, now let's talk about baptism and let's talk about communion. And that was just going to be my introduction to this sermon. And now you can be glad that I decided just to make that a sermon. But I want us to make sure that we understand how we're getting to this particular point. Jesus understands that you and I are going to wander away. And when we wander away in our own sinful thinking, we're going to look back and say, I just wonder if he's going to be faithful. And he's going to say, yeah, I'm putting a ring on your finger. So I, I want you to know I'm going to be faithful. And that ring is going to be baptism and communion. So when you get baptized, when you see a baptism, When you come up for communion next week, you're going to remember that God is faithful. He's not putting a ring on his finger to remember. He doesn't need any help remembering. But he knows you need help. He knows I need I need help. And so he gave us these signs. He gave us these sacraments that we would we repeat over and over and over again until we get all the way home. And that's not necessary because then we'll have the real son standing in front of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we just walked through the Bible in 30 minutes. And um, the end is there's a way home. There's a way back. And it's not us getting back. It's you coming to us. And so I pray for those who have invested their lives in other things that they would see the grace of God coming for them this morning. I also pray for those people who have seen the grace, but they thought of it like, well, okay, if I work my way back towards him, I'm sure he's going to go 50 percent of the way. And that's not grace. That they would understand that you have paid it all. And then there's those who have just wandered away and have forgotten and wonder if you've forgotten about them. I mean, do you really care anymore about us? Some people are thinking. And you've given us these rings to put on our finger to remind us of your eternal faithfulness. Thank you. And we say together, great is your faithfulness. Oh, God, our Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.